to lean in and listen. This vision has the widest possible relevance. And as we looked last week at part of chapter 1, we saw this portrait of the king and his beauty begins with the fact that he is the attentive father. He is the father who cares deeply for his children. Of all the things that could be said about God, all the things that will be said about him in the course of this book, this is what God, through Isaiah the prophet, chose to highlight first. God is the involved and devoted father of his people. And he offers deep inner cleansing to his people. We heard about the rebellion and the waywardness of the people in Judah and Jerusalem. And we also heard God invite them to come to him for cleansing from their rebellion and their waywardness. God said, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. That was last week. And now, this morning, through Isaiah, God shows himself also to be the restorer of the city. We're going to read from chapter 1, verse 21, down to chapter 2, verse 5. If you're using one of the green church Bibles, you'll find this on page 687, and in the larger print Bibles, 1062. Verse 21 of chapter 1. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves, They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his works a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the flame. This is what Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. 
In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is God's word. And one question we might have at this point is, how do I get my bearings here? What is the historical situation here? The first verse of the book told us this vision came to Isaiah during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So where are we here in chapters 1 and 2? Well, what's going on in these opening chapters is that the scene is being set for us. Later on, there will be reference to those kings and other kings. There will be reference to datable events. But these opening chapters are the introduction to the book. These chapters deal with things that are relevant no matter which human king reigns in Jerusalem or outside Jerusalem. No matter which superpowers in the ascendancy in the world. Isaiah is not going to tell us about the start of his own ministry until chapter 6. These initial chapters introduce things that will be worked out in more detail as the book goes on. We saw that last week with God's invitation to come and be cleansed. We do not learn how that will happen until much, much later in the book. And it's the same with the restoration of the city that we read about here. It is introduced here, we'll learn more about it later on. And what we have in this passage is a description, first of all, of the present city. Then we have the promise of restoration, followed by a description of the future city. And once again, this is something for all creation to lean in and listen to. Because this involves far more than just Judah and Jerusalem. So first of all, in chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, we hear about the present city. And it is a disordered place. Look again at verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now, murderers. The city here is Jerusalem, also known as Zion. And she's described as having once been faithful. And once being full of justice and righteousness. So when was that? Clearly it is not like that in Isaiah's day, as we'll see in a moment. When was Jerusalem the faithful city? 
Well, many generations before this point in time, God brought the Israelites into the land of Canaan, having first rescued them from Egypt. It was Joshua who led the people into the land, but the city of Jerusalem itself, that city held out against the Israelites until the time of King David. So about 400 years after Joshua brought the people into the land. Jerusalem held out for all that time, but finally David conquered the city and it became his capital city, became known as the city of David. David also brought the Ark of the Covenant there, the symbol of God's presence among the Israelites. Later, David's son Solomon built the Lord's temple there in Jerusalem, the place where God was truly present among his people. And so, What that means is Jerusalem was not just any old city. It was not just the city of David. Jerusalem was the city of God, the Lord. And that's why in the book of Psalms, we come across descriptions like this. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, The joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. That's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem became the center of God's operations on earth. The city of David was actually the city of God. And so then... The people of the city, well, they were to reflect the character of God. They were to be people of justice and righteousness. Why? Well, they were to be like that because the Lord is the God of justice and righteousness. Psalm 97 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. That's what his whole rule is built on. And if we ask, what exactly do we mean by justice and righteousness? Well, the word translated in our English Bibles as justice refers actually to the use of authority. It's about making decisions and using power. And we know very well, authority and power can be used in a bad way. It can be used in an unjust way. But the word righteousness here is about doing the right thing. And so when the Bible puts those two words together, as it very often does put them together, when it speaks of the foundation of God's throne as justice and righteousness, what that's making clear is the great king uses his power and authority well. He makes right decisions and he does the right thing. In fact, that is a passion of God the Lord. Today, lots of people are eager to tell us what they are passionate about, aren't they? I had an email once from another pastor telling me that he was passionate about good coffee, which he was actually trying to sell me in that email. People claim to be passionate about all sorts of different things, from the sublime to the ridiculous. But the Bible tells us that the Lord... The great king 
He is passionate about justice and righteousness. The right use of power and authority. That is how he operates himself and he expects the people of his city to operate the same way. The city of God is in order when it is characterized by justice and righteousness. Now we could debate just how brightly justice and righteousness shone in Jerusalem during the days of David, during the days of his son Solomon. But here what verse 21 is telling us is, compared to Isaiah's time, the city in David and Solomon's time was faithful. It was full of justice and righteousness. But by Isaiah's time, the city is disordered. She does not reflect the character of her God at all. The once faithful city has become a prostitute, meaning her people are not faithful to their God. They have prostituted themselves to other gods. And the city is full of murderers. That is a catch-all term for injustice and the results that come from injustice. Injustice may not always literally kill people, but it always, always damages people. It always causes suffering. Here we're told the city of God is full of injustice. It's full of the damage caused by injustice. Look again at verse 22. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Verse 22 is about good things being ruined. And verse 23 shows us it is the leaders of Jerusalem that are mainly in focus here. They are doing what they shouldn't do, partnering with thieves and loving bribes. And they're not doing what they should do, defending the cause of the fatherless, paying attention to the widow's case. We're still only in the first chapter of this big book, and already this is the second mention of the fatherless and the widow. God cares about those in need. And in the ancient world, the fatherless and the widow were prime examples of people in great need. They stand for the most vulnerable in society. God cares about them. The people of his city should care about them also. But they don't. And that is proof enough the city is disordered. It is not the way it's supposed to be. And the question we need to ask at this point is, so what? So Jerusalem in Isaiah's day was rotten. So God expected it to be better because it was his city. What relevance does that have for us today? Well, to see what relevance this has, just glance for a moment down to verse 29. God says, You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. What is that about? Well, at one level, it is another description of the unfaithfulness of the people of Jerusalem. 
They're involved in other religions, the, the same religions that their neighbors were into. That involved worshiping other gods, of course. And that worship of other gods often centered on gardens with trees that were counted as sacred. But, as you look at verse 29, does the mention of trees in a garden ring any other kind of bell? Is there somewhere else we've heard about that? Well, it's right at the beginning of Scripture, isn't it? God created a beautiful place to live with his people. There were many trees to be enjoyed in that place. There was only one tree that was to be avoided. In the Garden of Eden, living faithfully meant caring for God's creation, doing justice and righteousness. In the garden, avoiding that one tree. But you know what happened. The man and the woman ended up delighting in the one tree they were not to delight in. And as a consequence of that, justice and righteousness went to pot. If you open your Bible and start reading at Genesis chapter 4, you find yourself in a swamp of injustice and unrighteousness. The result of not delighting in what God delights in. What's the point? The point is that garden in the beginning was to be God's place. It was to be the city of God, if you like. The place where God's people would display his character in the way they use their power and authority. But in the garden, the man and woman were unfaithful. And the earth became disordered. So no, you and I do not live in ancient Jerusalem, but we do live on this disordered earth. A place where justice and righteousness are at very best flawed, and at worst they're in very short supply. Instead of God's garden, we find ourselves in other gardens. Places that fall way short of what God provided at the very beginning. And I think we can see that. Our daily news is filled with all sorts of injustice and unrighteousness. There are many varieties of it. It's changing all the time. From the scandals of one nation's aggression against another to post office scandals. I'm sure you've been following that. Right down in, in very recent days to the scandal of a child in this country dying of starvation at their dead parents' feet. And as we listen to those stories, we might find ourselves taking all kind of different positions on individual situations that we hear about and read about. We might disagree about who exactly is to blame in each case whose responsibility it is. But we have to agree, surely, this world is disordered. Justice and righteousness are very often in short supply. So God's words to Jerusalem must be of interest to us. They must be. 
in our own little corner of this disordered world. And what we find next, if we look back up to verse 24 now, what we find next in this passage is the promise of restoration. That's what these verses are, but it doesn't sound like it to begin with. Look at verse 24. Therefore, in other words, because of the unfaithfulness I've just described in verses 21 to 23, therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. That's talking about the people of Jerusalem, the people of God's city. Because they have abandoned justice and righteousness, they are nothing like God. He loves justice and righteousness. He is passionate about justice and righteousness. And so those who live lives of injustice and unrighteousness, well, they are his enemies. How could it be any other way? They are his enemies, and so his wrath and vengeance are coming on them. But look carefully at the purpose of this wrath and vengeance. Verse 25. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. During the course of this big book, we are going to hear plenty about God's wrath. But here, right at the beginning, we're told something we will have to keep in mind through the rest of the book. The purpose of God's wrath is restoration. It's to purge away dross. It's to remove impurities. It is to reorder what is disordered. That is foundational to our understanding of God's wrath. God's wrath is never a purposeless lashing out. Its purpose is to produce in the end what the Garden of Eden failed to be. It's to produce in the end what ancient Jerusalem failed to be. First Eden and then later Jerusalem, they were meant to be the city of righteousness, the faithful city. But they both failed to be what they were meant to be. But in the end, God will bring about the faithful city. And look how God will bring it about. This play is characterized by justice and righteousness. It's there in verse 27. Zion will be delivered with justice. Her penitent ones with righteousness. Again, we have this key idea. Justice and righteousness, doing the right thing. But this is not talking in verse 27 about what the people of Jerusalem will do. They do not have justice and righteousness. They're disordered people. This is about what God will do. When he reorders Jerusalem, he will do it 
with justice and with righteousness. In other words, when God reorders the city, he will not break his own rules. He will not act in defiance of his own character. Here in verse 27, the word translated deliver is literally ransom or redeem. The Lord will redeem the city with justice and righteousness. He will do it the right way. He will not overlook the city's injustice and unrighteousness as if it doesn't matter. He will make sure the demands of justice and righteousness are met. And isn't that where our own human solutions fall down time after time? We fudge our solutions, don't we? When one country invades another country, we say to the invading country, well, if you will agree to back off, you can keep a bit of the land you've taken. We'll overlook some of your injustice and righteousness if you'll agree not to do more of it, please. Or think on the personal level. When we talk about making restitution for some wrong that a person has suffered, don't we usually mean they'll get a payout of some kind? Some kind of financial compensation? But in many cases, a sum of money can't possibly make restitution for what the person has been through. It can't possibly put right the wrong that has been done to them. Even with the best of intentions, our human attempts to put things right, they fall way short of true justice and righteousness. But it is not that way with God. When he restores, he truly restores. His restoration of Jerusalem will not be a fudge. The city is lost in its unfaithfulness. But in redeeming the city, God will not shortcut true justice and righteousness. Last week when we looked at God's offer of cleansing, we noticed there was no explanation of how that cleansing would come about. That explanation will come later in the book. And here too, there's no explanation of exactly how God will redeem Zion with justice and righteousness. But in fact, the redemption will come the same way as the cleansing. Later, Isaiah will tell us a servant of God will take on himself all the injustice and unrighteousness of the city. He will become sin. The sin will become truly his. And that servant of God will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities that he took on himself. The New Testament tells us that servant is Jesus Christ. The Son of God. Justice and righteousness demanded that sin be paid for, and on the cross, Jesus did pay for it fully. Restoration comes ultimately through his sacrifice. But we are told here in Isaiah chapter 1 not everyone will benefit from this coming restoration. 
In the second half of verse 27, we're told it is the penitent ones who will be restored. Penitent ones are repentant ones. They turn away from their rebellion and faithfulness. They forsake their sin. Verses 28 to 31 make clear those who cling to their sin and rebellion will not be restored. They will not be redeemed. They will perish. Or in the very stark words of verse 31, they will burn in unquenchable flame. And we know this applies to more than just the people of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. We've already looked at the mention of the garden and the tree in verse 29. And so if any of us persist in the rebellion that started with our ancestors back in Eden, if we persist in that, if we refuse to turn from it, then we will miss out on God's redemption. We will not enjoy his restoration. But the focus here is not on those who turn away from restoration. The focus is on the thoroughness and the extensiveness of God's restoration. The beginning of chapter 2 shows us the future city. And it is a reordered place. Throughout this book of Isaiah, the perspective alternates back and forth between the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day and the new Jerusalem that is to come. All the way between the Jerusalem that is and the Jerusalem that will be. An alternating focus on the two cities. In chapter 1, we've heard about the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day. And now we have a glimpse, just a glimpse, of the new Jerusalem. Look how it's introduced in chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now compare that with how the book started back in chapter 1, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. You'll notice the introduction to chapter 1 and chapter 2 are almost the same. Except in chapter 2, verse 1, the historical markers are left off. We cannot date this. In fact, verse 2 of chapter 2 says, this will be in the last days or the latter days. When is that? Well, we're not told. We are getting a look here into the undated future. Verse 2 goes on, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Now, at this point, we are beyond the limits of the Jerusalem Isaiah knew in his day. That Jerusalem is certainly on a hill. Some of you have visited the city. But it is not even close to being the highest of the mountains. In fact, the other peaks immediately around Jerusalem are higher than it. Never mind peaks in other places. 
And this promise, it's not about more soil being added to Jerusalem to raise it up a bit till it becomes the highest. No, this is not about geographical height. This is about height in terms of significance. Verse 2 is talking about the preeminence of the new Jerusalem. If you read the Old Testament, you will often hear about the high places. Those are mentioned again and again through the history of Israel. Those were sites of pagan worship. Mountaintops were considered to be where heaven and earth were closest to each other. So what better place to have a shrine, a high place, than on the top of a hill or a mountain? And here, verse 2 is saying, in the future... The city of God will be the only place of worship, the only high place. So this vision given to Isaiah is an exclusive vision. There will be only one place of worship. The others will fall away into insignificance. It's exclusive, but notice at the very same time how inclusive this is. Verse 2 says, all nations will stream to it. One place of worship, and it's for all nations. And what is it that makes this new Jerusalem attractive? Because this is the place where you can know God. Verse 3, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Law can be translated instruction. So this is not limited just to the parts of God, God's word that contain obvious laws. Nations will flow to the new Jerusalem to know and obey God. To learn his instruction and to walk in his paths. That's what is attractive about the place. And because this is a place where people listen to God and obey him, it will be a place of peace. Look at the very famous words of verse 4. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. There will be no need for war because disputes will be settled. They will be permanently settled. And so there will be no need to train for war. There will be no need for weapons of war. But you'll notice peace does not mean a lack of activity in this future city. It does not mean boredom for the people of the city. It does not mean the people of the city down tools. No, look what the weapons of war are turned into. They're turned into farming equipment, plowshares and pruning hooks. Now, I do not know what those look like. I've never used those. But I do know they are for cultivating the earth. Therefore, developing instead of destroying. And that's the point. What we're being told is this new Jerusalem 
will be what the Garden of Eden was intended to be. It will be a place of fruitful activity. Tending God's place, making it flourish. With the curse of sin removed. Along with all the frustration that curse has brought to human work today. That will be gone. So what exactly are we talking about here? Is this a blueprint for sorting out the current problems in the Middle East? Is this something the Israeli government could build today and get their neighbors to join in with them? No. This is about something much, much bigger than a few square miles in the Middle East. This is just the first glimpse of something we'll see more of as Isaiah goes on. And beyond Isaiah, as the Bible goes on, we'll see even more. The last book of the Bible describes the ultimate fulfillment of God's restoration. The book of Revelation describes the new Jerusalem as a garden. The city is a garden that covers the restored earth. It is what Eden was supposed to be but failed to be. It's what Old Testament Jerusalem was supposed to be but failed to be. One day, God will make it a reality. A perfectly reordered place. God will make good in this promise of restoration. He will bring about a place of perfect justice and righteousness. God will bring about the world we all want when we stop to think about it. He will bring about the world we have always longed for but we thought it was too good to be true. A world where sin and injustice do not have the last word. A world where wrongs are put right. Where war is gone. Imagine that. Both wars between nations and wars between us as individuals. Gone. That's God's promise. It is a promise he returns to throughout the book of Isaiah. And throughout the rest of the Bible. It's a promise that will be fulfilled because of the work of Jesus Christ. The one who paid the price to redeem us from our sin. And from the sin that others do to us. So what do we do as we wait for God to fulfill this promise of restoration? We walk in the light of this promise. That is what Isaiah calls Israel to do in chapter 2, verse 5. The very last verse we read together. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The descendants of Jacob are the Israelites, descendants of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. Those were the people of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. And here, they are called to walk in the light of this glimpse of the future. They are to live their lives with this future in mind. This future is to direct their lives today. And today, for us, you and I have more light than those people did. We know that Jesus is the way to this future God has promised. 
and walking in the light of this future reality means we will not despair today. Even though the world around us is so disordered, even though that disorder reaches in and touches our own lives in different ways, all of us have experienced that disorder in various ways, in ourselves and from other people. But when we walk in the light of this future reality, we do not despair. We have God's promise, restoration is coming. And as those who belong to Jesus and follow Jesus, we are to call all nations to come to Jesus today, to join us as we travel towards this future city we've heard about. As a church, as a fellowship of men and women who are headed for God's new Jerusalem, we are to begin also today showing something of the justice and righteousness of our God. We're to show in our lives and in our relationships something of the justice and righteousness that will fill God's future city. We're to begin doing that in the way we treat each other the way we respond to the needs of those around us. Doing what is right. That's what it means to walk in the light of the Lord. Our God is the restorer. He's the God who reorders what is disordered. And he calls us to walk in the light of what we know of him. We have an opportunity to recommit to that together as we sing a song looking forward to this future city of peace and justice and righteousness, we're going to sing, by faith we see the hand of God.
words, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And so come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen.